Thank you, Pastor Chris. Hello, New Life Community Church. It is an honor to be with you today, and I want to lead off by showing off, but for Jesus, the two greatest gifts that I've ever received from God, and it is my beautiful family, my wife, Victoria, and I. We have been married for nine, almost 10 years. For me, it was love at first sight. For her, it was just first sight, but she caught up, and here we are, and all is going really, really well. And in fact, we met uh, a little over 10 years ago uh, at Biltmore Church. It was January of 2011. At the time, I was driving a 1996 Forest Green Mercury Sable. I, I talk about the car that you want to pull up to prom with or you want to pull up to the first date with your future spouse. Not exactly. Literally, the car would turn off at stoplights, and the panel, anybody else in here been there? Uh, the panel on the back door would literally fall off if you opened it, so we tried to keep that closed. And I'm so thankful that Victoria was more concerned about what the man, or what was driving the man than what the man was driving. Otherwise, we would not be married today. And then there is our three-year-old daughter. She is sweet. She's sassy. She's spiritual. And to know her is to love her. I'm so thankful for our family. Uh, and uh, Victoria, she's not in this service. She was actually in the first service worshiping together with us this morning. But also, I want to say thank you. I, I want to say thank you. New Life Community Church. Uh, as you know, uh, Pastor Chris is a caring pastor. He's a compelling preacher, but he has now led New Life into a preferred future, into a courageous uh, application of the Great Commission with the seven big dreams that he was mentioning. And we're so thankful and we're so thrilled that the dream that got put on our heart, he had already put on the heart of New Life Community Church to be a sending church, to be a church planting church, to be a local church with a global heart committed to the Great Commission. And that is why we are able to be together today as we are now in committed partnership with New Life Community Church. And that means that there's gonna be relational, financial, spiritual support that we, that, that we welcome, that we pray God would provide. So thank you so much for your partnership in the gospel. And what I want to do, uh, whether on your app or in your lap, hey, meet me in John chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 20 through 26. And I want to illustrate this passage, and I also want to illustrate our partnership with an example. Believe it or not, there's actually a game called Giveaway Checkers. And the object of Giveaway Checkers, the goal of Giveaway Checkers, is to position your checkers on the board to be jumped first. And so the, the way that you win is by losing. The way that you gain is by giving. Now, admittedly, a game like this is hard for us to grasp because it grinds against the grain of how we are trained to think about gaining, to, to think about success. What it does is it clashes with our categories for how we view and how we pursue success in life. And in our Western individualistic culture, Here's one of the difficulties, even the temptations that we face, is that we're going to be slow to celebrate the progress of others, and we're going to be quick to celebrate the success and the progress of self. Simply put, we would rather be impressive than we would be impressed. We're more impressed with ourselves than we are with others' success. And so the essential vision of success that society is selling us is striving 
earning, working hard to gain. And it all rises and fall, falls off of what is our definition of gain? Well, majority culture, society, is trying to sell us on a vision of gain that involves power, pleasure, popularity, and predictability. So what happens is we like to be in charge, we like to feel good, we like to be liked, and we like to clutch control. But I wanted to share with you that Jesus offers us an attractive alternative. He offers us a compelling counter vision to what majority culture is marketing to us. And life goes best when Jesus' ways are put first. And that's basically the scorecard, is what is the way of Jesus and how can I walk in the way of Jesus? But the question is, what is the way of Jesus? And pastor and author J.D. Greer of the Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham, who has been our training church for the past nine months, they've been giving us tools and heart work and heart preparation for planting a healthy gospel-centered church. They're one of our strategic partners, similar to New Life. Uh, but Pastor J.D. Greer he defines, or he basically summarizes the, the way of Jesus with three words. And it's really compelling and it's really clear. And I want to share, share it with you as a frame for the sermon. Gaining by losing. Gaining by losing. This is the way of Jesus. So think about it. Jesus gave up heaven so he could come down to us. And when he came down, as he was born, as he wrapped himself in human flesh... He didn't even have a place to be born. Historians estimate that his home growing up was the size of a parking space at Target or the grocery store. And that during his earthly ministry, he did not even have a place to lay his head. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, that's strange if he's truly king. Think about the donkey that he uh, entered into Jerusalem riding on Palm Sunday. That was borrowed. Think about the upper room where the Lord's Supper was instituted and established. That was a borrowed room. Think about the tomb where he was buried. It was borrowed. It wasn't even his. And when he was crucified, what, what did the soldiers do? They gambled for his last possession. And so everything Jesus owned, what did he do with it? He gave it away. But in giving away, he gained us. This was the cost and this was the price that must be paid in order to secure our very salvation. And it's good that he did. Otherwise, there is no guessing where we would be. And how much brokenness we would find ourselves believing and pursuing. And it should not surprise us. If this is the way of Jesus, it should not surprise us that the power of God will spread primarily throughout the earth in the same way. Gaining by losing. So if you have to log off or uh, leave out early, which I hope you don't, but I do want to go ahead and just give you the sermon in a sentence. If you're a note taker like me, you'll appreciate this. Here it is, the sermon in a sentence. At the heart of the gospel is a God who gained by losing and who invites us to do the same. At the heart of the gospel is a God who gained by losing and who invites us to do the same. So here's what's really going on in John chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 20 in just a moment. Jesus was just welcomed into Jerusalem as a king on his way to a throne. But five days later on Good Friday, he would be crucified as a criminal, which no one predicted, no one planned, 
No one expected. Instead of overcoming through a crown, which the world would consider gain, he would overcome through a cross, which the world would consider loss. And so Jesus, he's in the final week of his life before the resurrection, before his death, the final week of his life, and he is laser focused on one thing. What is it? It's his death. And it would be wise for us to find out why if we're called to walk in his way. So verse 20, let's go ahead and let's join together. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So what is the feast all about? Well, it's the feast of Passover. There were four major Jewish feasts and Passover would be a time when the city of God, Jerusalem, would be uh, crowded with all these internationals who had traveled from a long, far away, distant land. And what they were doing is they were essentially coming to worship God. They were coming to seek God and learn how to follow him, how to keep the law. And during Passover week, every, have you ever been to the, to the store? Maybe it's on Black Friday, probably pre-COVID. Uh, but if you've been to the store, just every line was long. Or have you ever tried to like book a hotel or an Airbnb in a particular place and everything was booked? Well, this was that moment. This was what Passover was for the culture of Israel. And every crazy uncle was in town telling far-fetched fishing stories and talking about the time that he saw Bigfoot. That's a little bit about what was going on at the family dinner table. And so some of these internationals, they're identified as Greeks. So let me just break that down for you really quick. That basically means that these were people, men and women, who do not think, talk, speak, eat, or vote like you. They are different. And what, what do they want to do? Verse 21. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So why did they go to Philip? Well, it's probably because Philip actually spoke Greek. And he grew up in a place where there was a lot of Greek-speaking families and traditions. And so he's like basically translating, it's possible. And why do they want to see Jesus? Well, they want to see Jesus because Jesus is the biggest attraction in town. All of his podcasts are being streamed, and he's this polarizing prophet who nobody expected to explode on the stage of history, who is able to raise the dead to life, make the blind to see, and he's confronting political and religious power with undaunting authority. In verse 22, let's see where this goes. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Sounds like a conversation at a seventh grade cafeteria. Verse 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Now what in the world kind of a response is is this? Well, let's let's talk about it. Uh, Jesus says the hour has come. Let me crowdsource real quick and see just how humble we really are. Who would be humble enough to admit that you typically show up late? Any, Any like people who just show up late okay just of a few who is the person who you would be humble enough to admit that you show up obnoxiously early and so you're that person you're like 30 minutes early and like they're peeking through the blinds they're like hey honey they're here yeah going hot i've still got to take a shower or something like that like you're that person yeah we judge each other let's let's not act brand new we do we we think that our way is the best way and i'm not trying to dignify our dysfunction but it's good to laugh at ourselves But when Jesus said the hour has come, what he's saying is he's saying that timing is important to God. In the what? In the beginning. Did you know that God created time? God cares about time. And 
This is a timely truth for us because Jesus' timing, though not always preferred or predictable, it is always perfect. He's never too early and he's never too late. He's on time every time. And in the wake of a global crisis, this ought to encourage our hearts and let us know that he has not unnecessarily postponed our plans. He is pressing us into the mold of his plans, which is his presence, which is indiscriminate of our circumstances. If we get him, we gain. And God's timing is always on time. And then he goes on to say the son of man. Now, I don't know about you, but as I've been reading the Bible since I became a Christ follower at the age of uh, 19, about 13 years ago, that, that title has always confused me. Like, Jesus, what do you mean when you say the son of man? Well, this was actually Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. He uses this as a self-designation more times than any other title in the Gospels. And this title is significant for two reasons. Number one, it's a bold identification with God. So when he says the son of man, a good Jew would go to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, the son of man is identified as the ancient of days who is given everlasting dominion over every people, place, and priority on heaven and under heaven. And so when he says the son of man, that's controversial. That's, that's a hot take, and it's going to stir up some trouble, he, as we would see five days later when he would be crucified. But additionally, it is a humble identify, identification with us, with humans. The son of who? The son of man. God wrapped in flesh, stooping from significance into the slums of our sorrow. And then he says, what is the, what's the hour about? What's the Son of Man going to do? He's going to be glorified. So what is God's glory? Let's take a complicated concept that might be abstract, and let's do our best to make it clear. And this is the simplest way that I know how to put it. God's glory is God's goodness and God's greatness gone public. For all to see. And God's glory through Jesus is about to go public more than ever before. And God's goodness, what is God's goodness all about? God, God's goodness is God doing what we won't do, and that's suffer. We go to remarkable lengths to avoid suffering, to avoid inconvenience, to avoid discomfort. But what does God do? He goes to great lengths to press into suffering for our sake. So that's what God's goodness is about. But what God's greatness is about God doing what we can't do, and that is save. We cannot rescue ourselves with any lesser source than the sinless Son of God. He alone can save. He is our only hope in life and in death. And his greatness is his display of his saving power. And the glorious center, check this out, of God's goodness is located at Calvary through a crucifixion, through a brutal death. It's Jesus substituting himself upon the hook of sin and suffering for people, you and me, who are not worthy. But then the glorious center of God's greatness is resurrection, which means life. It's Jesus rising in victory, having saved us from sin, Satan, death, and hell, and for some reason that I can't understand, I can't fully explain, he has decided to share that victory with us through repentance and faith. It's remarkable. Behold the gospel. But notice the pattern, and this is what I want to show you. Notice the pattern on how God's glory in the gospel is revealed. 
Jesus does not get to a resurrection without first facing a crucifixion. And if we're called to walk in the way of this order, neither can we. And God's pattern of renewal to us, crucifixion, resurrection, is going to be God's pattern of renewal through us, crucifixion, resurrection. And I'm afraid that in Western culture, we, we waste too many months and moments of our lives wishing for a different order. God, I want resurrection without crucifixion. God, I want a crown, but I do not want a cross. But in the upside down, inside out, forward back ways of Jesus, the gain of resurrection comes only through the loss of crucifixion. And we would do well to embrace this instead of resisting this. And here's, here's what we must overcome. We must overcome a truncated view of God's glory revealed in the gospel. So uh, I don't know if you like to work out. I don't know if you like to go to the gym. If that's you, uh, maybe, maybe you're like super fit or maybe like you need to get super fit. Regardless, that's all of us on some level. Uh, but whenever you go to the gym, sometimes there's these guys or these girls, they'll just set off the lunk alarm every single time. They're spitting, they're grunting, and they're letting you know that they're doing some heavy lifting, but they never do leg day. And so they have chicken legs. And so what, what happens is, which by the way, I'm just going to give you the facts right here. You cannot even spell legendary without leg day, so you best not skip leg day. So here's this guy. He's got chicken legs, but, and that's a great danger. You don't want that. That's embarrassing. That's silly. That's strange. But what's an even greater danger would be that we would have a chicken-legged gospel, that we would have an underdeveloped view of the crucifixion and an overdeveloped view of the resurrection. That we would only want the, the, the salvation, but we would not receive the suffering. There is only one way to walk after Jesus, and it will involve us carrying a cross and following him to the resurrection, which he has promised and secured and sealed for all of us for all time who place our faith in him. This is what God's glory is all about, and this is good news of great joy that is for all of us. Jesus goes on. Verse 24. Truly, truly, if Je everything Jesus says is true, by the way. This is kind of like your mom calling you by your middle name. It's like, you really, you really need to pay attention right here. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls or is sent into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So what is this grain of wheat all about? Well, the gospel, in so many ways, it's like a diamond. A diamond that, if you rotate a diamond, every rotation is going to lead you to a different vantage point of its beauty. You're going to catch a different glimmer of the glory of a diamond with every rotation. So with the gospel. It takes so many mediums to capture, to begin to express the fullness of the glory of the gospel diamond. It's stories, it's songs, it's signs, and in this case, it is a symbol. So the grain is a symbol of salvation. It's a picture of how it happens. So, for example, if a grain remains above ground, what happens? Its impact dies alone. Its life ends with itself. But if a grain is sent into the ground and its shell is shattered as it goes into the soil, then it has the ability to produce life. It has the ability to bear much fruit. Look at the genius of Jesus right here. What a brilliant symbol of how salvation is secured. So think about it. The glorious grain of Jesus' life was sent 
from the significance of heaven to the sorrows of this life, from significance to suffering. And like the shattered grain that gains, Jesus was sent to be shattered into the world, into the grave. And it's because his life was sent into the ground to be shattered that our lives now can be raised from the ground and renewed. So Jesus is always better than we actually believe. You're never going to get there. You're, you're never, ever going to get to a place to where you're like, I've figured out the goodness and the greatness of God. We can't do it. But we can, we can start with this, recognizing that Jesus not only pays the price, he also provides the power. And these next two verses are in place to show us what does it look like to walk in the power that Jesus gives us through the Holy Spirit and apply gaining by losing. So verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So let's take something that's really controversial. It is. Uh, let's not try to edit Jesus right here. He's, say, he's saying something very serious. This is kind of a mic drop moment. But let's take what is controversial and let's just make it clear. Jesus is saying whoever loves the ways of the world will hate the ways of Christ. So, um, who in here is right-handed? Okay, any lefties in the house? So if you're right-handed, imagine trying to do everything in, in life with your left hand, and if you're left hand trying to do everything in life with your right hand, that's basically the way that it works. If we hate the ways of Christ and we love the ways of the world, then whenever we try to walk in the way of Christ, it's gonna be, it's so unnatural, it's so uncomfortable, and I wanna go back to where I'm comfortable. However, whoever loves the ways of Christ will hate the ways of the world. Now let me be clear. This does not say that we will hate the world. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. And who did he give? He gave himself so that we could have eternal life. So it's not hating the world, it's hating the ways of the world that lead to sin, Satan, death, and hell. Love counts when love costs, and love is costly in a culture that prizes lies that says the way to life is gonna be sin. The way to life is going to be self. But Jesus says, no, the way, the way to life is, is, is loss, it's, it's death, it's sacrifice, gaining by losing. We gain Christ, we lose the world, success. We have gained everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We don't, we don't need to add a little bit of creamer to Jesus. We don't need to add some salt and pepper to Jesus. He himself is enough. This is success. We gain by losing in at least two ways, and I want to show these to you right now. They're from the text. The first is this. We gain by sacrificial surrender. So in these verses, Jesus is telling us what must be true of us if we are truly his. So it's simply this, a, a love for him that surpasses all else. This is surrender. A surrender is a sacrifice. Why is, why is surrender a sacrifice? It's a sacrifice because it requires us to relinquish control. One of our chief idols. I want to call the shots. I want to wear the crown. I want to be in charge. Not so in the way of Jesus. Cultural Christianity, which what is cultural Christianity? It's everywhere, by the way. Um, cultural Christianity is Christianity without dependence on God and without desire for God. 
It's a hobby more than it's a hope. It's a place more than a people. It's a building more than a body. That's cultural Christianity. And cultural Christianity makes it very easy for us to have a bumper sticker theology. Have you guys seen God is my co-pilot? Okay, so the, the, the bumper sticker theology that basically says God is my co-pilot. Here's, here's what's, what the issue is, is this theology is the opposite of surrender. Because if God is my co-pilot, then I'm in the wrong seat. When Jesus comes into our lives, he's not coming as an advisor, as a tour guide, as a handyman. He's coming as a lifeguard who is rescuing those who are drowning. And having rescued us, he has all control and all command and all authority. So he pulls the car over and he says, this is my car and you stole it. And so what we do is we can argue with him, which leads to death. That doesn't mean we don't struggle with it, but we can, we can disagree to the point of going a different direction in our own authority. We can argue with him, which leads to death, or we can agree with him, which leads to life. Jesus, you are right. This is your car. I stole it. I'm wrong. Where are we going? My yes is on the table. This is surrender. And history is full of examples of brave men and women who surrendered, who released control, who gave the keys to Christ and said, you drive the car, I will follow you. And one of the examples that has really meant a lot to me over the years, I'll never forget when I was in college, I read the biography of Jim Elliott, the famous missionary to Ecuador. Uh, The story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliott has stirred me in so many ways. But essentially, in 1956, Jim and four of his friends committed to engage the Wawani tribe who had a reputation for being violent and hostile toward outsiders. And they were in one of the most remote areas in the jungles of Ecuador that you couldn't even get to. And they said, God must be glorified among all places and all peoples. He he needs to get glory there, so we're going. And so it was going remarkably well until on January 8th, 1956, after establishing contact with the Warani tribe, Jim and his friends were speared to death by an Ecuadorian riverside bearing witness to the gospel that is being preached today. And what is often overlooked, a grain of wheat gone into the ground, is Jim's wife and three-year-old daughter would go back to the same tribe that killed her husband and her daddy and would live among those people, would walk among those people, and would witness to those people, which led to Uh, the entire village being saved. A grain of wheat gone into the ground, this is surrender. And you know, history may be full of past examples of men and women who released control, but so is the here and now. And what's deeply personal to me is the surrender of the team, the team of disciple-making disciples who are surrendering their time, their talent, their treasure, their dreams, their ideals, their preferences, their control, to move to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina with us this summer and plant Coastway Church. And this is, a, this is a, what we would call a big decision. So a big decision is a decision that affects every part of your life. So who you marry or how you handle your health, those are big decisions that affect every part of your life. This is a big decision that literally it touches every part of our team's lives. And therein, I, th- I think that we see surrender and uh, I just want to ask you this, this question. What would it take for you to even think about? 
not do it, but even think about moving from where you currently live. To quit your job, to sell your home, to live farther from family, to forsake familiarity, to, to move away from all the great places to eat in Asheville, North Carolina, and all the beautiful mountainscapes that we see and enjoy, to surrender control. Well, culture has its own categories. Actually, culture thinks about this, and it goes like this. We will encourage you to move for a house, a spouse, a promotion, or an education. None of these are bad, but none of these are best. Jesus' words in John chapter 12, they lead us to ask different questions. Uh, we're, we're not asking anymore, why would I move for the sake of spreading the gospel? We're now asking, why would I stay for anything less than the gospel? You want to know why a, a team of currently 18 that is still growing and increasing is moving for the sake of mission? It's because we all came to the same conclusion. That we can leverage more of our lives for the gospel, more of our time, more of our talent, more of our treasure by moving than by staying. Gaining by losing. And you know what we pray? We pray that our willingness to go would strike a match and further fuel an already burning fire for the glory of God and the gospel advancing at New Life and at other partner churches. But if we, if we do stay, or if we go, here, here's our options, if we are going to be sacrificially surrenders to Christ, is we can leave or we can leverage. We can leave where we are, and we can go to a new place among a new people where there is great, great need for the gospel, and we can have a ministry to the church and a mission to the world. Or we can leverage where we currently are, which very likely that's what God is calling you to do right here in the 828, to leverage where you are and have a ministry to the people, the, the, the body of New Life Community Church and a mission to the world right here. There's so many non-Christians, so many non-church right beneath our eyes and we must engage. Last, last verse, 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So we gain by losing how? We gain through sacrificial service. And so if surrender is all about us releasing control, giving the keys back to God, then service is all about us releasing the credit and saying, this belongs to you too, Jesus we walk in the way of a sacrificial servant. Jesus, in the very next chapter, in John, he would take up a towel, he would bend down on his knees, and he would wash 24 unworthy feet, including the feet of his betrayer and the feet of his denier. And we get sensitive if somebody looks at us the wrong way. We wall up if we don't get our way immediately. And yet, this is the king who we're following, who sacrificially served those who were unworthy. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to be his servant and to go where he is. So a great question. How did we make the decision to plant a church in Myrtle Beach? Well, the short of it is this. It wasn't our idea. This, God is the ultimate visionary. He sees more than others and before others. And before we saw the need in Myrtle Beach, God saw the need in Myrtle Beach. 
And he decided that he would share this idea, this vision, for a movement of disciple-making disciples who seek Jesus and bring renewal to multiply the gospel throughout the Grand Strand and to the entire world. That was his idea. That was his commitment. And if we didn't go, he would call someone else. So what we did is we said, God, we agree with your idea, and we want to take ownership in your idea, so now we're going to go public with that, and we're going to invite others like New Life to participate in this vision. And you know, we truthfully, we looked at six other cities before we landed on Myrtle Beach. And uh, I don't know if you've taken a good look at me, but I don't exactly have a coastal complexion. I already have sunscreen on back order. I'm going to be like, shh, everywhere I go. It's like, my complexion is much more conducive to the mountains. I'm just going to be real with you guys. But God has a sense of humor, and he uses unlikely servants in unlikely ways. And so I'm not sure what goes through your mind when you think about Myrtle Beach. And don't act brand new. I, I think I know what goes through your mind whenever you think Myrtle Beach. You're thinking about family vacations growing up. You're thinking about bad decisions that you made on a spring break. You're thinking about the first tattoo that you or your friend got that you regret and maybe an airbrush t-shirt that you would never wear in public again. <laughs> and those shell necklaces that when they break, it's bad. Okay, so for us, when we think about Myrtle Beach, the narrative has been totally reframed. Instead of thinking about a vacation destination or a place where you would go to make bad decisions on a spring break, we see a place that is ripe for gospel mission. We see a place that God cares just as deeply about as he does Asheville, North Carolina. And so when God called us to plant a church, he put three things on our hearts. And here's how we landed on Myrtle Beach. A growing city in the southeast, college students, and spiritual need. U.S. News recently ranked Myrtle Beach the number one fastest growing metro area in the entire country. In the previous three years, it was number two. Fifty people will move there today, most of whom from the unreached nations and the unchurched north. Subdivisions are being built faster than local churches, and the church must be called up. If the city is planning infrastructure for this kingdom of man, then the church must plan infrastructure for the kingdom of God that will never pass away. And then we started thinking about college students. It's like, when do most people either make it or break it with their life direction? It's in college. Who am I going to marry? What am I going to do? Who is going to be my God? And who are going to be my friends? Those are the most... Those are decisions that affect everything. And if we can overlay the gospel as an attractive alternative to the ragers and the parties and the subculture that is being sold of self to students at Coastal Carolina University at Ori Georgetown Tech, then we want to be a part of that. 18,000 students right there within like a three-mile radius waiting to be reached, waiting to be engaged. And then spiritual need. 75% of those who live in Metro Myrtle Beach are without a relationship with Jesus or a meaningful connection to a local church. And so the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. God has called us, and now he is sending us. And I just want to share a picture of those, the beautiful feet who are being sent. This is our, a picture of our launch team, which has grown to 18 adults, all of whom are moving for the sake of mission. And we're everyday people. We're not very different than you. And this is how we're gathering. We're, we're spread out across three cities in, three, in, in, uh, in uh, two states. And what we're doing is we're gathering over Zoom. We're being trained and prepared on how we can plant a healthy church. And each of these men and women and children 
are transplanting their time, their talent, and their treasure for at least two years to make disciples with us through Coastway. And I would, it, I would say the primary way that you can partner with us is through prayer. Is through prayer. So would you pray for God to protect? Pray for God to protect our team from sin, from temptation, from, even from sickness. Uh, keep us safe. We're traveling a lot to and from cities where we're moving and where we're going. Pray for God to protect us. Pray for God to provide for us. Uh, we, our team, they need jobs, uh, homes, uh, a location to, to gather and, and to grow, schools for kids to form and flourish. But also pray that God would pursue. Pray that God would pursue the lost in Myrtle Beach. And pray that he would move in the hearts of men, women, and children to respond to the gospel that we're carrying to them. And lastly, hey, pray that we would be prepared for God to prepare us. A church planting will take a lot out of you and it will test everything in you. And this is, there's a lot of heavy lifting and there's a lot of heart work that goes into planting a church. So please pray for us that God would prepare us. What is this all about? This is about Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus as the ultimate picture of surrender who, though he would have preferred to flex into plans that didn't involve a cross, he surrendered to the plans of the Father that required a cross. This is a picture of the ultimate servant who, though he was worthy of being served, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death to serving sorry sinners, even death on a cross. And a king who is willing to die for us is a king who is worthy of us living for him. I think about the words of the British missionary C.T. Studd. Only one life, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let this be our attitude. Pray with me. God, your ways are upside down. They're inside out. They don't always make sense. But according to the kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven, it requires a cross. It requires sacrifice. It requires surrender. It requires service. And yet we're so selfish. God, we humbly hold our, our selfishness before you and we say sorry. And we seek you now. Lord, I thank you so much for New Life Community Church. I pray that you would cause your face to shine upon this people. I thank you for Pastor Chris and his family. I pray protection and provision for them as they lead this people into the preferred future that you have planned. God, bless this partnership. Bless Coastway Church, Lord, as we are sent. And God, we give you the glory and we're thankful for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.